Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They take care of our air conditioning and do a great job. Visit the website and give them a call. It's johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Mark Shulman, founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We'll be talking about current global events, and there's a lot to talk about. Larry Reed is the uh, president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Do you remember Paul Harvey? Well, we're going to be talking about Paul Harvey. And Sal Nuzzo is the vice president of policy and director of the policy of the Center for uh, Economic Prosperity at the James Madison Institute. We'll be visiting with uh, Sal as well. It is October the 4th, and on this day in 1957, the Soviet Union inaugurated the Space Age with its launch of Sputnik, the world's first artificial satellite. Sputnik had a diameter of just 22 inches and weighed 184 pounds and circled the Earth once every hour and 36 minutes, traveling at 18,000 miles an hour. Its elliptical orbit had an apogee of uh, 584 miles and our perigee, which of course is the nearest point to the Earth, of 143 miles. Visible with binoculars before sunrise or after sunset, Sputnik transmitted radio signals back to Earth strong enough to be picked up by amateur radio operators. Those in the United States with access to such equipment tuned in and listened in awe as the beeping Soviet spacecraft passed over America several times a day. In January of 1958, Sputnik's orbit deteriorated, and as expected, the spacecraft burned up in the atmosphere. Officially, Sputnik was launched to correspond with the International Geophysical Year, a solar period that the International Council of Scientific Unions declared would be ideal for launching of an artificial satellite to the study of the Earth and the solar system. However, many Americans feared more sinister use of Soviet's new rocket and satellite technology, which was apparently strides ahead of the U.S. space effort. Sputnik was some 10 times the size of the first planned U.S. satellite, which is not scheduled to be launched until the next year. U.S. government, military, and scientific community were caught off guard by the Soviet technological advancement and their uh, united efforts to catch up with the Soviets heralded the beginning of the space race, or the space age. The first U.S. satellite, Explorer, was launched on January 31, 1958, and by then the Soviets had already achieved another ideological victory with their launch of a dog into orbit aboard Sputnik 2. The Soviet space program went on to achieve a series of other space uh, firsts in late 50s and early 60s. First man in space, first woman, first three men, first spacewalk, first spacecraft to impact the moon, first to orbit the moon, first to impact Venus, and first craft to soft land on the moon. However, the United States took a giant step and leap ahead in the space race in the late 60s with Apollo Lunar Landing Program, which successfully landed two Apollo 11 astronauts on the surface of the moon in July 1969. Well, the whole program kind of died out, didn't it, under the Obama years. But nevertheless, uh, we're seeing private enterprise pick it up again, and it's pretty exciting to see the adventures in outer space. Well, U.S. fatalities from COVID-19 surpassed 700,000 on Friday, according to figures from the Johns Hopkins University at a toll roughly equal equivalent to the population of the nation's capital in D.C. Nearly 4.8 million people have died worldwide since the outbreak in 2019. The open question is whether these deaths are from COVID or with COVID, but irrespective of those of the numbers, politics has unfortunately infected the quality of the data. <clears throat> in a recent study, antibody levels generated by two shots of the Pfizer vaccine can undergo up to a tenfold decrease. I'm not. I'm going to repeat that tenfold decrease seven months following the second vaccination. Uh, research suggests the drop in antibody levels will comprise the body's ability to defend itself against COVID-19 if you become infected. In a recent BioRxiv study published uh, ahead of peer review, many recipients of the vaccine displayed substantial waning of antibodies 
and its variants. The two-dose Pfizer vaccine was found to be 96% effective for the first two months following the dose, according to the July 28th study. Uh, the research paper outlined a drop in uh, efficacy uh, of 83%. Let me find this. I uh, scroll down here. Uh, uh, found, uh, found 96% effective in the first uh, couple of months but a drop of 83.7% after four to six months. Can you believe that? The uh, vaccine is the most widely used in the United States. That's the Pfizer. More than 226 million doses have been administered as of uh, February or September the 30th versus 151 million for Moderna and 15 million for Johnson & Johnson. Senate Johnson continued to drop truth in the United States Senate on the coronavirus pandemic. During his Thursday, Senator Johnson pointed out that 63% of all coronavirus Delta deaths in the last 7.5 months were fully vaccinated individuals. Obviously, the recent surge in cases of death is not a pandemic of the unvaccinated uh, President Biden. Well, Florida Senators Rick Scott and Marco Rubio are demanding answers on Biden's administration's decision to ration life-saving coronavirus treatment, describing the Department of Health and Human Services' decision as unethical and inexcusable. In September 30th, letter to HHS Secretary Xavier Becerra, the Republican senators questioned the administration's decision to ration the distribution of life-saving monoclonal antibodies for states that needed, describing the decision as incredibly disturbing. This change in policy could reduce the availability of these life-saving medications to Floridians as well as individuals and families in other states, they said, explaining how the policy affects the Sunshine State specifically. Under this new policy, Florida's allocation has been set at about 31,000 doses, despite the fact that Florida needs about 36,000 doses each week. The stark difference in doses uh, available uh, compared to the doses used and rational supply will jeopardize the health and safety of Floridians, increase hospitalizations, and could lead to higher mortality rates. They followed with 11 questions, including one asking why HHS has not developed a robust plan to promote and expand the supply of monoclonal antibody therapy. The only way that this global pandemic is to ensure prevention and treatment options are available for every American. We are vaccinated, and we encourage every American to talk to their doctor and consider getting the vaccine, they clarified. However, we know that the vaccinated and unvaccinated alike, proper treatment with monoclonal antibodies can mean the difference between beating COVID-19 or succumbing to this terrible virus, they added. Restricting the supply of life-saving treatment is unethical and inexcusable, they said. So uh, let's see if this has any impact on uh, the President of the United States. Last month, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced the Sunshine State would receive 3,000 doses from uh, GlaxoSmithKline, uh, and because uh, they make it as well. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem expressed the belief that Biden is rationing such treatment for political reasons, and I think that she's absolutely right about that. Well, a group of federal workers, including several members of military, are suing the Biden administration over a pair of mandates directed at all federal and military service members to get vaccinated against COVID-19. Americans have remained idle for far too long as our nation's elected officials continue to satisfy their voracious appetites for power, said the lawsuit filed by a group of plaintiffs, including four Air Force officers and a Secret Service agent, according to the Washington Post. Ten plaintiffs filed a suit in the Washington U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C. on September the 23rd, seeking for the judge to place an injunction on the President Joe Biden's vaccine mandates that cover all federal workers, and contractors, as well as all members of the military. The lawsuit argues that the mandates violate religious freedom protections in the First Amendment. Both orders grant exemptions for religious and medical reasons if one can qualify, according to the Post. Besides its constitutional and statutory claims, the lawsuit prepared by attorneys in Virginia and San Diego contained vituperative language for a legal filing, citing the administration's authoritarian grip on the nation and the country's 47 years subjugation to Biden's vapid political power, the Post reported. So, so, uh, so much needed. I hope uh, they prevail. Uh, 
uh, those those ten plaintiffs, uh, because these these uh, mandates are absolutely out of line, especially when you consider that after seven months, the vaccines lose seven seven eighty three percent of their efficacy, as we talked about previously. Segment Dr. Anthony Fauci said it was too soon to say whether Americans can gather for Christmas in the interview Sunday on the Face the Nation. You know, Margaret, he said, it's just too, too soon to tell. We may not be able to celebrate Christmas together. Mr. Gloom and Doom Dr. Anthony Fauci. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine, Be in the Know, and Stay Up to Date by Reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, I'm going to be visiting with Mark Schulman, founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <clears throat> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, hey, the host Mark, of Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast good. or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback oh, to the 60s, complete with <laughs> great music great. and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most Absolutely. of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's hey, for I, years. I, I enjoy the great choices for breakfast out. and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Oh, wow. Lulabee's Diner will quickly okay. become one of your yeah, favorites good. for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Wow. Lulabee's Diner Big in the news. Green Tree Shopping Center at Big the corner news. of Immokalee and Airport Pulling uh, Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for well, fabulous so. food and for a forever uh, cool, uh, rockin' good time. What, what, uh, what's the context for Facebook? Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year. And oh, since yeah. 2010, yeah. 527 men and women have graduated from St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming yeah. work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, yeah. Cafe M25, You're on hold, Carl Thank you. Detailing You're on hold. Center, and award-winning catering <clears throat> operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is a author. He's written several books, mainly on past presidents. He's also the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. You've got to check it out. It's called HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. So we're going to talk about current global events, and let's start off with uh, Pandora's Papers, kind of an interesting story on hiding wealth. Absolutely. The Pandora's Papers, which were about a million documents, uh, were found and leaked and over the last two or three months, a group of uh, columnists from a bunch of newspapers together have been going through it, and um, they released some of the results, I guess it was last night or yesterday. And what it shows, of course, the most explosive information is of King Hussein of Jordan, who, who through various companies, uh, bought $150 million worth of property in, in California. It shows that the Lebanese are the people with the most the highest number of people actually 
uh, using offshore shell companies in order to hide their wealth. Number two, actually, is Great Britain. Hmm. Um, and um, it's going to create waves, at least for a little bit of time. I mean, this, happened, this has happened before. Yeah. Um, the reality is the very wealthy use all sorts of tax schemes, semi-legal, legal or not, to hide their wealth. The issue is not so much, as far as I'm concerned, it's not so much the issue of wealthy people. It's more, interest, more interesting public servants, theoretically, right? Yeah. Some, one, of, one of the people found, of course, was Putin who is rumored to be one of the richest people in the world. Now, of course, you know, what did he do? Did he invent a new patent? Yeah. He, you know, <laughs> what is it that made, they, they created his wealth? Yeah. Right? So, King Hussein, too, you have to look at that and say, okay, you understand why the, why the royal family in England is very wealthy, right? We're talking yeah. about, you know, 40 generations of land, etc., owned by the royal family. So it make, makes perfect sense why the royal family of England is very wealthy. Yeah, I mean... But King Hussein's family came to Jordan, um, I believe it was in like 1930-something or another. Yeah. And the country has been dirt poor ever since. So exactly where did he get hundreds of millions of dollars from? Yeah. It's so in the... Uh, yeah, question. Yeah, back in the day, this is, I think, going back in the 80s or 90s, uh, probably the 90s, uh, Riggs Bank in Washington, D.C. had a bunch of clients. They couldn't figure out why they had so many diplomats and uh, uh, leader, world leaders uh, as a client. Well, they were laundering money through Riggs Bank. I mean, this is what politicians do, <laughs> unfortunately. Right. I mean, that's part of the problem, obviously. Yeah. And, you know, it's, well, first of all, often it's money coming from the United States and other countries that have provided all of this aid, and a lot of it gets, you know, gets redirected. I mean, I have no doubt in my mind that the former government officials of Afghanistan are living very well off the money they sure. managed to skim. Absolutely. What about Haiti? And, my you know, one goodness. Of the things we, one of the things that became clear is, you know, not, I don't want to really go back to Afghanistan, but one point here, and I think it's relevant, <clears throat> is Afghani troops hadn't been paid in six months. Huh. So what do we expect them to fight for? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and there's and no the doubt the money was there. Corruption is one of the biggest problems yeah. um, in the world in the sense of good governance and everything else and the decision, you know, whether people are making the right decisions. Look, it just came out now, oh, I forgot what number of judges, I think one particularly in Texas, um, sat on like 57 cases where he had an interest in. Uh. And congressmen, I mean, I, the, the fact that congressmen don't have to put everything they own in a blind trust I don't mean personal things like their own farm or something, but, you know, all their stocks and bonds. Mm-hmm. It should all be in blind trust. How can we trust anybody to vote for or against a particular bill when we don't know how it affects his, pocket, his or her pocket? Well, and you know the votes are all directed or, or influenced by money from on K Street, for crying out loud. I mean, it's the, as, as one congressman once told me after he retired, we have the best government that money can buy. Money can buy. Look. One of the worst decisions of the Supreme Court, in my opinion, was the decision. I forgot the case that basically decided that, decided that uh, money was speech. Yeah. You couldn't limit the amount of money. Yeah. Um, even to corporations, etc. And that, of course, created part of this issue. Look, yeah. John McCain, um, it was McCain Feingold were right in trying to get as much money out of politics as possible. And, of course, most of that's been overturned by the Supreme Court. Well, most of their intentions were good, but unfortunately what they did is solidified the fact that we now have a two-party system and we'll never have another emerging party, unfortunately, because of uh, uh, the... Well, I don't know if that, but McCain-Feingold is pretty dead, so I think the Founding Fathers created the two-party system. Yeah. They, didn't, they didn't want any parties, but that's a different story. Yeah, true. Exactly. So, uh, moving away from that, uh, the uh, but I think the real story there, and I think you and I agree, is the fact that it's uh, there are politicians and uh, world leaders hiding their money, unfortunately, from the people. And it's probably all uh, corrupt and uh, stolen from the people, unfortunately. Let's move to... Yeah, a- absolutely. That, 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 that is the real story. I don't, I don't care about... I mean, <clears throat> I care very little about the businessman that's doing all sorts of manipulations. If yeah. it's legal, it's legal. But it's the, it's the politicians. It's the government leaders who have, who have siphoned off money from their people. You know, if I had wealth in Lebanon, I'd certainly want to get it out of that country for sure. <laughs> So, uh, Absolutely, but if and, and, and like I said, I don't. You know, if I'm a businessman who made money in Lebanon, I have no problem with it. Yeah. But if I'm the, you know, president, I'm not saying I don't think anything came over the president of Lebanon. But for the sake of argument, if I'm the president of Lebanon, and I've taken all my money out. That's more problematic. That certainly is. Let's move to uh, you. Have some breaking news on what's happening in Iran. Right. So it actually happened in Cyprus last night, 
where the Iranians attempted to um, assassinate a group of Israeli businessmen who, were, who have offices and live part-time in Cyprus. Cyprus is obviously a, a softer target than trying to kill anybody in Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, they failed, um, but it was the Iranians who, the assassin was, ca- was captured. Um, but it was, it was sent by the Iranians as part of the ongoing low-level warfare that's been going on between Israel and Iran for the last two years. So yeah. they have not succeeded in, in any of their attempts so far, but sometime they will eventually, obviously. Yeah, interesting. Wow. So, by the way, uh, any comments at all about the crime wave, apparently, in the Arab sector in Israel? No, I mean, look, it's a, it's, it's been an endemic problem that has existed um, for a long time. It's gotten worse. Now, part of the problem is just somehow the, the amount of guns that are in the Arab sector, which is very, very high. Um, and, of course, so any little dispute ends up as a gunfight, mm. which is problematic. There's also organized crime, which is also a big problem. Um, and the government finally realized that they need to do something. It's sort of been on a low burner. This last year, it's been way, way up. And to be honest with you, no one is quite sure what happened, you know, why this year did it suddenly become so high. There's always been the problem of honor killings, which are, you know, very much of an issue, and they're, they're clan disputes, where clan disputes keep on going on for years, and they kill each other. But in the last, um, we're now in September, I think there have been 100 murders in the Arab sector, which is very, very high. Let's yeah. put it that way. Interesting. Well, um, thank so, Yeah. Thank you for, this, for those comments about that. I guess the, the big news is what's happening in, in China and Taiwan. Over 77 Chinese warplanes flying over Taiwan in 48 hours. But also a story... Right, now, remember, it's not over Taiwan. It's over the Taiwanese defense zone. Let's uh, just make sure we understand that. Okay. It's not, it's not good, mind you. I just want to make sure people don't think these... Planes are flying over Taipei or something like that. Gotcha. Um, so, look, this is a question, you know, and here's the very, very delicate question that no one's willing to talk about. Um, is the United States willing to go to war to defend Taiwan? And more importantly, and this is where it gets really complicated, the only way to avoid war in Taiwan is for the Chinese to think the United States is willing to go to war. Mm-hmm. So... How, you know that that is the best way of avoiding a war is if the Chinese believe the United States is willing to go to war if they attack China, if they attack Taiwan. But you know, can you convince the American people that that's the position they should take? Well, I think hard question. Uh, well, I would suggest that uh, probably they were less sure uh, back in January of this year than they are today. They probably have uh, based on what's happened in Afghanistan and other international nah, situations. Come on, Person, the, the, the United States has been pulling out of the world uh, since Bush. I mean, Obama started pulling back. Uh, Trump pushed back much, pulled back much faster than than Obama, and Biden has continued some of those policies. I don't think it has any effect of you know Biden or Trump. It's it's a general, it's a general movement of America first, and we don't want to spend our treasure overseas as much as we can, and it's been a ongoing. Uh, viewpoint that that has you know gone between it, it makes no difference which president. I mean, tactically things may be different, but overall it's an overall direction, and it goes back to the fact that America can't decide or hasn't had the discussion of what its role should be in the world. Well, I mean, my my point is this: I agree with you that the United States has been withdrawing over those uh, periods. However, I think if the president made a declaration, "Don't do this," or there were repercussions if, in fact. Uh, uh, that people, they broke their word or if they act, acted against American interests. So my point is only that I think that the world is less sure that Biden would do the same thing. Okay, maybe. I don't know. I'm, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a very subjective position that, you know, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. Um, so so uh, the, the other related story to China, though, is the economy in China and uh, this Evergrande share suspended trading. Uh, apparently, this is beginning to have an impact of markets around the world. What are your thoughts? Right. So, okay. So, there you have a problem where the whole world is bought, the Chi- you know, bought into the Chinese miracle mm-hmm. and that the Chinese economy could keep on growing forever. And that's just not the case. And one of the things we've discussed before is the fact that China has run into this tremendous demographic problem on one hand. Um, that it doesn't, um, there are less people. 
and they build cities for people that don't exist, and so companies have built cities, and, you know, if you don't sell, if you build a building and you don't sell or rent it, you don't make it as a developer, right? right. In other words, the developer has to either sell or rent his whole building in order to pay back the loans he took from the bank. Right. Um, and they're running into that, that direct problem. Now, things are even more complicated right now when it comes to the shortage of electricity in China. And to be honest with you, I'm not totally sure what all the causes are. Part of it has to do with pollution controls and meeting certain um, certain um, goals in terms of pollution. The Chinese are actually doing that, by the way, despite all the fact that we're saying that, well, we can't, we can't do it because the Chinese are not. The Chinese are actually very concerned about global warming because they have the worst atmosphere in the world I mean, in terms of pollution and everything else. So they've, they've cut back, and of course they have the worst, they have the almost all coal. Most of their economy is based on coal plants, although they've moved heavily to solar. So there's a shortage of electricity, which is causing companies to cut back production, which is now having another cascading effect on the supply chain, which is a problem all over the world right now. Mm-hmm. So... The world is having a shortage of almost everything. Go, you know, go into your dealership and try to order a new car and see if you can drive off the lot with one and forget it. Mm-hmm. Maybe you'll get it in six months. Mm-hmm. So that's a serious worldwide economic problem, and it's being caused by shortages that exist in all sorts of specific areas. Originally, COVID nineteen started this problem, but the problem seems to be getting worse. Then, of course, you have Britain with with Brexit, where their their economy is spinning down because of all the the transportation problem. So, yeah, back so, to back to Evergrande, though the you know our economy is driven by supply and demand and, and uh, responsibility for risk and so forth. But the Chinese have decided they're going to build out these cities with the with the prospect that people would you know if we build it they will come kind of thing. Well, uh, Evergrande, I don't know how what kind of influence the Chinese government had on their decisions to take on these risks, but they, they've ended up with three hundred billion dollars of uh, of debt that they can't they can't pay they can't service the debt. So I wonder right because they're not selling they're not selling selling or renting their their buildings quick enough. Right, and that's that's the inherent problem. Absolutely. Uh, look, I, in, in some ways, it's like us like America's subprime problem, right? Yeah, they're renting in order to sell. Sell the houses or the apartments. You're giving loans to people who couldn't possibly pay back their loans, and so it's a little bit different. But mm-hmm. it's basically the same result. Ultimately, the person holding the paper is in deep trouble. It is the same in the sense that the United States set the table for and uh, for uh, the problems that we had in 2008. There's no question about that. With the policies that we had, and people being able to borrow money that they couldn't pay. Uh, but in this case, I'm referring to the Chinese government having so much influence on creating the problem in the sense that they... No, do. absolutely. There's no, no question about that. And the Chinese are now in this very strange position because the economy, in order for it to keep on growing, needs to be free. And, you know, we, the United States always made the assumption that the Chinese were going to become freer and more democratic because in order to succeed in the modern world, you need less restrictions. You need more intellectual freedom, and all those, you know, all those different things. Right. And that's what brings economic growth. And that's why that was our basic policy from the time of Nixon, basically, that we would work with the Chinese, help them develop their economy, gain, you know, gain from their their gains, and also with the view that as the their economy may move forward, they would become more and more democratic. That you know, starting all the way back. Tiananmen Square, but certainly since the last you know period with the current Chinese leader, that has gone the other way, and we've seen the Chinese government closing down or taking parts of Alibaba and other major independent Chinese companies, which they felt were getting too strong. Mm-hmm. And all of this has put a chill together in the in the creativity and the ability of the Chinese economy. Yeah. So one of the things that I think we can stop thinking about is that the economic uh, powerhouse of China was un- is unstoppable. I mean, I go back to, I guess it was the 80s when we thought that the Japanese were going to buy all of America. Right. And, you know, that didn't work out so well for the Japanese. I must say, there's a there's an undercurrent of a, a narrative going around that the, United, that the Chinese government is very unstable right now, and the economy is extremely unstable. A- any comments on that? Yeah, again, the government, we so... We so do not understand the Chinese government, right? Uh, we have China experts and everything else, and yet they, no one really knows. 
The inner workings of the Chinese government right now way seems very strong, but who knows? The economy, though, really does seem to be in, in difficulty. And um, both because of the crackdown on some of the high-tech companies, which, again, you know, puts a blanket, a wet blanket uh, on creativity and people willing to take risks. Right. And, of course, what we just discussed here was a large, very large real estate concern on the verge of bankruptcy. Uh, it brings questions to all the other things that are going on in China. And, of course, one of the things we've never understood and never known we see all these statistics from China, you know, with growth and productivity and everything else, like every other country. But everybody I know who's in the field says, we don't really know whether these figures are true or not. That's right. Yep. Absolutely. After many years. So that's one of the big questions. You know, so, so, yeah. um, it's very interesting. It's, um, I think on, one, you know, on some levels it's very dangerous. On the other level, it should make us a little feel a little bit better in the fact that, you know, like I just said a minute ago, China is unlikely to own all of America anytime soon. Uh, understood. Although uh, there's <laughs> nothing more vicious than a cornered animal, and you hate to see, <laughs> you hate to think. Uh, right. If, well, so, well, we, we don't want them to go under. Maybe let's be let's be very clear here. Yeah. It's not in America's or in the world's interest for the Chinese economy to go under. Too much is dependent and interdependent with that. Right. On the other hand, we wouldn't mind if they grow a little slower. So, Mark, I want before uh, our time is running uh, short now, but I do want to get your comments on the, what happened, what's going on with Facebook right now. Absolutely. So, look, Facebook is proven now, time and time again, that its algorithms are what drives people to engage, and the algorithms are designed to keep people engaged as much as possible. The problem with that is the algorithms have discovered they, they discovered that the algorithms. Um, work to bring out the most extreme comments, the most extreme statements, because that gets the most additional comments and the most page reads. So what happens is, whatever is the most extreme, whether it's right or left, Republican, Democrat, or you know, with other, any other dispute, because we've seen it in other countries too, whatever's most extreme gets pushed more. And so what people see more and more are the divisions, because the, the algorithms of Facebook work that way. Yeah. And they work to, 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 to bring the most extreme comments because, hey, there's an extreme comment. I'm going to comment on it, right? right. You're going to engage with it. You're going to talk about it. Yeah. You'll write about it. So, ah, this works. So we'll send out some, you know, we'll, we'll send the same feed to other people. But you know, Mark, it, it almost works that same way with uh, news outlets. Uh, the ones that get the best clicks are usually the ones that uh, uh, rise to the, the, to the top, and it's usually the most uh, inflammatory types of stories, for example, what AOC did or <laughs> what's going on with Well, some... except there's, a one, there's one major difference, though. Uh -huh. um, the news, you know, the news, major news, news um, pages, let's say, on, on, on the web, or of course the physical web, physical papers, excuse me, whether it's the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, or USA Today, or whatever it might be, they're not algorithm-driven in the sense of right. literally you know, sending everything based on what the algorithm says. The editors make a decision, what is the lead story right now? What is the second? Now you can argue with their decisions, you can say it's biased, you can say all sorts of stuff, right. but it's not driven by the algorithm. Right. The algorithm is what's most dangerous because it, it inherently goes for the most provocative, the most extreme, and the most extreme is bad. Let's be honest with you. Let's yeah. be honest. Absolutely. Whatever your views are, a more moderate take on it is probably more healthy for the country. Right. So, uh, and I'd also appreciate any comments you might have on the story that, uh, for example, Instagram, uh, the mental health of kids participating in Facebook, Instagram, and other types of social outlets is creating mental health problems for our kids. Any thoughts? Absolutely. Because, listen, um, neither of us have ever been young women, but we uh, have daughters. I don't know about you. So, you know, you can see the issue where Instagram, right, the, the pictures, the beautiful pictures. People spend all the time on this beautiful picture. Wait, I don't look like this beautiful picture. Yeah. And it starts becoming a real problem. And, you know, especially teenagers who go through these, you know, those years when they're not quite there, so to speak. Right. And um, it really has created mental health issues. And I think these are, again, one of the big problems is we have these wonderful, I put in quotation marks, networks that have taken over our lives to a large extent. The percentage of time that especially young people spend on Instagram, on Facebook, on you know other 
other social networks to some extent, is very, very large, and their interactions are all through these networks. But again, they're all pushing, um, you know, it's, it's the beautiful people who appear in the, in the, in the feeds morph, and not to mention the advertisement, right. uh, that you sometimes can't tell the difference between an ad and an actual post. And I can guarantee you that whoever's going to appear in a, an advertisement is going to be beautiful. Yeah, and so all of this is wrapped into one, and they know they're doing harm. There's no question about it. Mm. Uh, look, let me say, follow one one last thing. The fact is that they've built this this um, myth that in order for these companies to exist, they have to personalize all their advertising and everything else, and therefore they also have to follow us. They have to know everything about what we do. I'm in favor of a law that basically says. They can't know anything about me. Agreed. Other than absolutely nothing. They should, be, should not be able to know anything. And you know what? There was a study they had done that the difference between personalized ads and non-personalized ads was about 0.2% in the click-through. Right. Which is nothing. Right. And I don't understand why this doesn't happen. I really don't. It's really very simple. They should not be able to collect data about us. Period. End of story. Yeah. That's all. I would agree with that, Mark. We're in violent agreement on that one, Mark. As usual, we have so much more to talk about, but no time to do it. I just genuinely appreciate your commentary on the show, and I want to refer our listeners to your website, HistoryCentral.com, multimedia website, great for kids of all ages, including you and I. Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. My pleasure, Bob. Have a great week. You as well. Thank you. All right, coming up, Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Lyndon and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining to choice are the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000-square-foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. Today is brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. You get tickets now. And to find out more about this wonderful performing arts center being built in downtown Naples, the website is golfshoreplayhouse.org, golfshoreplayhouse.org. Well, uh, Larry wasn't available, so uh, we're going to have a lot to talk about anyhow. Uh, airplanes repeatedly left Kabul with empty seats during the evacuation, yet more than, well, a couple hundred Americans and likely well over 100,000 Afghan allies were ultimately stranded 
That's right, uh, Jen Psaki, stranded in Afghanistan. Meanwhile, American officials stopped many pre-screening Afghans with, incredible, with credible documents, including some U.S. residents from boarding aircraft, while others that had been vetted were allowed to go through the international aid ex, uh, experts. Mistakes were made, made by good-meaning people, but operating under very tough circumstances, said John Sifton, an Asia Advocacy Director for Human Rights Watch. The Kabul airport was flooded with people trying to flee the nation because intense chaos that led to U.S. officials making mistakes when reviewing documents. The U.S. government didn't have a plan going into the, uh, this International Stability Operations Association President Howie Lind said, I just, it just turned to this haphazard, some got in, some didn't. President Biden's orders, along with Taliban's unexpectedly fast seizure of Afghanistan, were the primary factors that led to the rush, according to the experts. Since the airlift ended, there have been reports that many refugees had been sexually abused, child brides, possibly married at the last minute in a desperate attempt to flee the country. Others were flagged after evacuation as possibly being ineligible for entry to the United States, with some in limbo at military bases abroad. Many abandoned Afghan allies, meanwhile, are in hiding from Taliban. This is a prime example of what it looks like when we don't have a game plan and we do it fast and loose, said Yvette Harrell, a New Mexico Republican, said uh, to Fox News. It's just incredible. In fact, there are some... uh, NGOs, organizations that are getting planes and trying to get Americans and uh, American uh, residents out of Afghanistan, and yet the American United States government is now saying, has said, I'm not saying they're doing it now, but has said in the past, uh, if we're not going to allow you to come here to the United States, and if you go to a neighboring company, and if they ask our permission to allow you in, we won't give it. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? And yet we brought Thousands and thousands of people to the United States for which we have no information or knowledge that had, there's no way that, to know whether they tried to help the United States or were against us at all in Afghanistan. What a mess. What a mess. Well, after a week of failed negotiations with no vote on infrastructure or on rec- reconciliation, Speaker Nancy Pelosi has announced a new deadline for a House vote on infrastructure. At least she says she does. The new deadline is Sunday, October the 31st, according to a Dear Colleague press release from the Speaker's office, as highlighted by Jordan Williams from The Hill. The Speaker said she wants to pass the bipartisan bill by October the 31st, when the 30-day reauthorization of federal highway programs expires. The House passed the extension Friday night amid uh, Democratic infighting over infrastructure, Williams wrote. The press release titled, Dear Colleague, It's About Time, is rather creepy, actually. Pelosi uh, begins seven out of eight paragraphs declaring it's about time as a bizarre crowling rye. It seems to be the theme from a speaker considering how much she's gushed last night in a separate press release about how Joe Biden's speaking with House Democrat caucus on Friday who visited seemed to have served no purpose and achieved nothing. But anyhow, she thought she was gushing about how well he did. Hey, look, it looks like this is not going to be a 3.5 trillion dollar bill, but unfortunately Joe Manchin has said, well, it could be as much as 1.5 trillion. So that's apparently the negotiation that's going on, is uh, how much money we're going to take and devote to these socialist programs, like, for example, uh, free uh, community college, free uh, preschool, and you can go and money for for, uh, Afghans and others. It's just amazing. Uh, how these people can decide to spend our money, our taxpayers' money, uh, in their programs. Nevertheless, she set the date for October the 31st, so we'll see how this all turns out. Hopefully, it will be a house of cards and fall on its own weight. In just over eight months, President Joe Biden and his administration have been caught in tangled web of broken promises, false assurances, and fibs on a range of issues, including COVID-19, the southern border, the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the national debt. For example, no vaccine mandate. Responding to a reporter's question in July, White House Press Sec- uh, Briefing regarding the federal government potentially issuing a vaccine mandate, Press Secretary Jen Psaki said it was not the role of the federal government that is the role that institutions, private sector entities, and others may take. Answering a previous question, she said, I don't think our role is to bl- place blame or on unvaccinated people for putting others at risk. 
of getting COVID-19. However, the Biden issued a vaccine mandate in September, blaming unvaccinated people for the continued pandemic. This is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, he said. I'm not kidding. He really said that. Can you believe it? He also said if vaccinated, uh, no masks will be required. He said that. In May, Biden announced that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention was no longer recommending that fully vaccinated people need to wear masks. However, when Psaki was asked in late July about vaccinated people having to mask up again, she said the CDC was revising its guidance because of the Delta variant. And there's so many other lies that he's told, unfortunately. Uh, I don't know how we as American citizens can trust Joe Biden. I'm certain that uh, right now the international community is making the same claim as well. Can we trust this man? I don't think so. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Sal Nuzzo. He is the Vice President of Policy and Director of Policy of the Center for Economic Prosperity at the James Madison Institute. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. School Choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America and is now supported by three out of four voters. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior schools of choice. Optima's goal is the successful launch of Hillsdale College, classical academies, and other schools of excellence serving kindergarten through 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through content-rich classical education in the liberal arts and sciences with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. A terrific product of the process, Naples Classical Academy opened this fall in a classical virtual school. Optima Classical Academy will open in 2022. Find out more by visiting OptimaEd.org. Help children in Florida optimize their education opportunities. Visit www.OptimaEd.org. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the air. The show is brought to you by part by Choice Social. It's a new, refreshing social networking platform. You can download the app by visiting the website, choicesocial.us. We have with us Sal Nuzzo. He's the Vice President of Policy and Director of Policy for the Center of Economic Prosperity at a terrific organization, the James Madison Institute. Sal, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Bob. Always a pleasure. Tell us about the James Madison Institute. Sure. JMI is a nonprofit, nonpartisan research think tank. Uh, we're based in Tallahassee, but do work all over the state. And our job is to uh, work with policymakers in the public and inform them and educate them on the wisdom of free market capitalism, limited government, and the power of uh, property rights. JamesMadison.org is the website, terrific website. I hope you'll uh, check it out. So I wanted to visit with you, Sal, about what's going to be how the uh, legislative session is shaping up in your eyes and in your mind uh, going into uh, January. I guess the session starts in January this year, next year. Yes, uh, January 11th is the uh, the kickoff to session. They're actually uh, doing pre-session committee weeks. Uh, they had one already, and they'll have about four others uh, between now and 
uh, the end of December. Uh, they use those committee weeks to do a lot of organizational planning and to tee up a lot of legislative priorities from the Speaker of the House, the Senate President, and the Governor. Uh, and so you get a sense of, uh, through those committee weeks, the shape of what's going to happen. And, and so a couple of different things that I wanted to kind of touch on and give you a sense of. And I'll start the first one off with a preface that JMI does not uh, take a position on abortion. We deal solely in fiscal and economic issues. But one of the big issues that's going to pop up uh, this session is a heartbeat-style bill uh, similar to what the state of Texas passed a number of weeks back that's currently being litigated. Mm -hmm. But a a freshman member uh, from, uh, I believe it's South Florida, Webster Barnaby, had filed a heartbeat uh, abortion bill that would uh, uh, require a doctor to perform a sonogram, and if a heartbeat's detected, an abortion uh, would not be provided. Uh, interestingly enough, we're getting uh, kind of information from uh, the, the, se- the Senate and the House that I don't think what comes out of the session this, uh, this coming year will be as restrictive as Florida or as Texas uh, had made. Uh, they have no exceptions for rape or incest, and it creates an enforcement mechanism that I think a lot of the members in the legislature would be rather uncomfortable with, just in my opinion. So that's one of the big issues uh, that's popping up. The other one uh, is one that comes up every 10 years, and that is the reapportionment, the redistricting process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Florida gains about 800 and some people every single day. They're moving from all over the country. And as a result of that, uh, with that population growth, when the census conducts its uh, decade, uh, every decade uh, uh, apportionment, uh, they redistrict and reapportion the members of the of the U.S. Congress, and so Florida gained one seat. Uh, we thought a number of us thought we would gain two, but we gained one, and so uh, the members are responsible for redrawing all of the district lines, both for the U.S. Congress and for the state legislature, to kind of account for uh, the district distribution of the population. Yeah. So. Uh interesting point though i i can't understand how we did not end up with at least two seats if not three it was a surprising do you think there's any funny business going on with regard to the census well if you talk to folks from texas they will absolutely say there was funny business they thought that they were going to get three seats they only got two um i was i was surprised uh, everything that we had looked at from the standpoint of kind of the over the 10-year period, who was, who was gaining population, who was losing population. Uh, whether or not it's a full-blown conspiracy to deny Florida another seat, I'm not, I, it's probably above my pay grade. Yeah, but, uh, but it's definitely a disappointment in the sense that we, we thought that Florida's, um, Florida's prominence in the congressional uh, delegation would be, would be increased by one more. Yeah. Well, to, to the points that you've made, the, the in terms of the heartbeat bill, there's no question that's going to that's a, just a lightning rod uh, for uh, emotions here in the state. I'm quite certain. So there'll be strong positions on both sides. Uh, where do you think this is going? Do you think a bill like this will be uh, passed? I do think it will. Um, I think it's something that uh, the legislature uh, has given some signals uh, that uh, they are going to take it up, and usually. Uh, when that happens, you can kind of, especially on a controversial bill like this, you can kind of get a sense that they're going to tee something up. There was a statement made, though, from the Speaker of the House, Chris Sprouls, in his office that he was instructing uh, the Health and Human Services Committee, I believe it's called, to kind of take point on what the context of the House's position on the bill would be. What that indicates to me is that the the representative who filed the bill a couple of weeks back, uh, Representative Barnaby, his language may not be the final language, and it may be something where the committee itself develops what's called a proposed committee bill, which, generally speaking, has a quicker path through uh, the chamber when it gets uh, when it gets filed. Oh, so interesting. Can you also speak to uh, this whole no- notion of redistricting? Who does it, and uh, how, how does the end product uh, develop? 
No, that's, it's a great question, and it's so important, and yet so few people know a whole lot about it. So uh, Florida has 160 uh, state legislative uh, uh, districts, uh, 120 House members, and 40 senators. And so committees from the Senate and the House gather uh, once a decade, and they're named by the Senate president and the House speaker, and they redraw those lines. And so they kind of uh, look at the population distributions within the state, where people have moved, and they try to make those district lines as closely uh, aligned in population as possible. And that's not, you know, it's not a science, it's more of an art, uh, but they go through that, they will pass a uh, resolution, and then that becomes the district lines. And the governor has relatively no say in that. Hmm. On the congressional side, uh, we will move to 28 U.S. congressional seats. They will go through the same process. However, it's slightly different. They will pass that as a law, and the governor must sign it. It's a bit of a quirk and a nuance in the way that uh, the Florida Constitution articulates it. And so uh, I don't know if you remember, but about 10 years ago when the legislature went through this, the maps were challenged. Ultimately, the courts threw them out, and they had to go back and redo them, and it was a whole protracted battle. So I think everyone uh, that's participating in the process is committed to not uh, seeing a redo of that. And so it's my hope that uh, they'll kind of, you know, kind of, it'll be drama free this time. Well, we could certainly hope so. Uh, So uh, final question. Uh, I've heard that the insurance rates could be going up in the state of Florida. It kind of raises the whole question about citizens insurance. Uh, Any comments at all or any thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. And for listeners that are on coastal property or close to coastal property, this is going to be a very big issue. Uh, There has been, this is a a long uh, drama-filled process of frivolous tort litigation, ups and downs with hurricane seasons, and a whole host of other issues have contributed to this fact. And that is that, yes, property insurance rates are rising. They are continuing to rise and uh, insurers are beginning to leave the state, and we're going to see a little bit more of that. As a result, Citizens Property Insurance Company, which is the state-run insurer of last resort, they are seeing their counts of policies held go up. The legislature tried last year to implement uh, some reforms that would have kind of stemmed the tide of that. I don't think based on the data and the reality that we're seeing now, I don't think they went far enough. So my hope is that the committees will begin to look at some more robust reforms and how to bring that uh, kind of path back under uh, into sanity. Yeah, and I, I have a lack of information on this, but uh, in, in the absence of that information, I tend to make things up. And what I've made up in my mind is that uh, legislators have many times like to sock it to the insurance companies by creating mandates for policies and things that will, you know they have to pay for this and have to pay for that, which drives up the cost. Obviously, the consumer ends up paying for that. Do we have mandates on our uh, property insurance policies that uh, could be eliminated or reduced so that it makes it more inviting to bring insurance companies into the state of Florida? Yeah, one of the things that that had been debated back and forth uh, because of a lot of uh, uh, litigation over the last couple of years had to do with the regulations governing roof repair and the things like, and, and I'm not a property insurance guy or a risk evaluator or anything along those lines, but things like depreciating the cost of a roof repair if you have a 15-year-old roof that insurers should be able to depreciate that if something happens or offer policies that might um, that might be less expensive mm-hmm. but might expose uh, uh, consumers to a little bit more risk depending on the age of roofs. And so those things, generally speaking, if you can offer more choice and opportunity for insurers to offer things that meet a consumer's needs, then you get downward pressure on costs. And so uh, that is certainly something that when you, uh, when you begin the sausage making of legislation, it, it, it ultimately is a very tricky path to navigate. I uh, appreciate those comments. Sal Nuzo, again, Vice President of Policy and Director of the Policy of the Center of Economic Prosperity at the James Madison Institute. I hope you visit the website jamesmadison.org. Sal, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me, Bob. My pleasure indeed. 
Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. We've got great guests lined up for tomorrow's show. Uh, always appreciate hearing from you about the content of the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com, bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.